Welcome everyone to SALT Talks. I'm John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT. SALT Talks, in lieu of our global gatherings, the SALT conferences, we try to bring you leading voices from finance, technology, and geopolitics digitally in your homes the same way we do at our SALT conferences. Today, we're very excited to have Sal Khan joining us for a SALT Talk. Sal is sort of the man of the hour uh, with everyone quarantined at home with their families. The Khan Academy, which he started, has served as a, a really uh, prolific learning platform for people that are homeschooling their children. And, and it's obviously uh, been very important for families uh, that are educating their children at home right now. So, Sal, thank you for joining us. I'm going to flip uh, over to Anthony Scaramucci, the founder of Skybridge and of SALT, to conduct the interview with Sal. Uh, thank you again for joining us, Sal, and we look forward to the conversation. Thanks, John. Hey, Sal, thank you so much for being here. Uh, unfortunately, this was the week of our SALT conference this year. Uh, you did an amazing job last year at our conference, Sal, so we're very grateful to you. Uh, everybody knows who you are, but we'd like to know how you became who you are. And we're just wondering if you could spend a, a few minutes talking about the, your personal background and your journey to doing what you're doing right now. Yeah, and I can I can uh, start arbitrarily far back, and let me know if you want to double click on any of it. No, I, you know, I, gr I grew up in, in Louisiana, uh, and um, uh, you know, f fairly fairly humble uh, background. Ended up uh, getting uh, you know being a financial aid uh, aid kid, going to MIT, having an engineering background. Uh, after business school, I ended up working as an analyst at a hedge fund, uh, and it was around uh, that time that I just found out. It was right after my wedding, actually, in back in two thousand four that my cousin Nadia, who was 12 years old at the time, was having trouble in math. And when she told me that, I said, hey, I'm 100% sure that you can be good at that. How about when you, when you go back to New Orleans, uh, I tutor you. And I, you know, it's very relevant now. It was distance learning, uh, but it was back in 2004. And long story short, you know, it was unit conversion she was having trouble with. She, got, she learned the unit conversion. She got caught up with her class. She even got a little ahead of her class. And you know, I, 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 at that point, I became what I call a tiger cousin. And I convinced her school to let her retake her placement exam and she got into a, from a remedial track into an advanced track and then word spread my around my family that free tutoring was going on and I before I knew it I had about 10 or 15 cousins around the country that I was tutoring every day after work and uh, with a with a tech background I, I started writing software for them I saw a lot of them the reason why they were struggling is that they had gaps from fifth grade or sixth grade and that's why they're having trouble in seventh grade or eighth grade and so just a way for them to practice for me as their teacher their tutor to understand what they're working on, how long it's taking them, uh, what they might need extra help in. And that was the first Khan Academy. It had nothing to do with videos. And uh, a friend of mine, I was showing this off at a dinner party and uh, you know, all my friends knew I had this crazy project with my family on the side. And uh, uh, my, the host of the party said, well, this is all cool, Sal, but how are you scaling your lessons? And I told him, yeah, it's, it's hard to do with 15 cousins, what I was originally doing with one or two. And he says, why don't you record some of them as, as lessons, put them on, onto YouTube uh, for your family. And I immediately thought it was a horrible idea. I said, no, YouTube is for, for cats playing piano. It's not for serious math. Uh, but, um, you know, I gave it a shot uh, regardless. And that kind of took on a life of its own. And so you fast forward 2009, set it up as a not-for-profit. I had trouble focusing on my day job at that point. Uh, so I quit. We were living off of savings for... Uh, a little bit, trying to convince someone to realize that the social return on investment, even then, seemed astronomical. And um, you know, it was a hard year. But by the end, by early 2010, 
some foundations started to see that this was a, a really valuable thing. And so that's where we got our start as a real organization. And, you know, when I quit my job, it was about 50 or 100,000 people. Actually, when we got our first funding, it was about 100,000 folks were using Khan Academy. Uh, now we have about 100 million registered users. And has that gone up? I'm assuming it has gone up uh, as a result of COVID-19. How has your footprint changed uh, as a result of the COVID-19 crisis? Yeah, you know, we, we uh, it was about, it, was, it seems like a lifetime ago now, about three months ago, we started seeing our traffic pick up in Asia, especially South Korea, where we have a, a trans, one of our, there's 45 translation projects around the world of Khan Academy. And some teachers started emailing us from South Korea saying, hey, there's school closures, and that's why we're leading heavily on Khan Academy. And that's where it first dawned on us that this was even a thing. And then uh, we started saying, maybe this is going to happen other places. We started stress testing our servers, saying, maybe we'll get 2x the load, 3 who knows? You know, thinking that's the most we, we would see. And we said, maybe we should start preparing if, if that happened. Uh, to you know, for to give structure for parents so that they can know how to how to homeschool or quarantine school their their kids, uh, resources for teachers. You know, started running webinars, and then it was that I think it was the first week of of March. I it's you know when when California was one of the first states that had murmurs of maybe the schools would be closed the next week. That we said we have to go into full gear, um, and so we just ramped up all of those efforts. And that Monday. You know, it was California and several states in the West, and then very by the end of that week, it was pretty much the entire country, and then much of the world uh, was closed. And we saw our, our traffic by the end of that week be about three x of what it typically is, and that's kept up. And registrations, parent registrations, are twenty times what we typically see, and uh, student and teacher registrations are five to ten times what what we would typically see uh, in that time period. So before we had about 30 million learning minutes per day on Khan Academy. Now we're approaching 90 million learning minutes per day. So of the, you know, I, I don't know if you would know this answer, but I'm curious, the, the ballpark number of public school systems on a percentage basis that are using Khan Academy. I know the local town I live in, Manhasset, is using you guys uh, K through 12. Uh, do you find that you have high density saturation throughout the entire U.S. or is it just certain areas or what's the footprint in the U.S. look like? Yeah. And, you know, some of that we're, we're still trying to figure out. This is before COVID, about half of our usage was what we call teacher directed. That's a teacher has a Khan Academy account and uh, he or she will have at least 10 students on Khan Academy and they, they're and they can look at their data. So they, they had a connection on the platform. So that was half of our what we call learning time on Khan Academy before the crisis. And it seems to continue to be about half of our learning time after the crisis. So it seems like everything has gone up two to three X uh, after the crisis. And there's some districts that we have very formal partnerships with places like Clark County, which is Las Vegas. Uh, and those counties or those school districts were very easily able to transition to Khan Academy. And we can pinpoint, we can say, oh, that's Clark County. That's what they're doing now. But we've heard a lot of other places, a lot of other cities, counties, school districts, you can imagine they had to close with two, three days notice. They would just list us on a list, like go use Khan Academy for this many minutes every day. Or their, their teachers would say, hey, uh, use Khan Academy or it's a teacher by teacher uh, thing. So uh, that's a little bit less formal. So it's harder for us to track some of this because it wasn't a formal district partnership. Uh, but we're hearing a lot of anecdotal stories and that seems to, to, to play out in the data. Do you, when you think about our educational system and the unevenness of it, K through 12, and you were talking about gaps that even your family members were experiencing, 
uh, and you had to give a broad overview, let's say you were testifying in front of Congress and said, okay, this is what the K through 12 educational system looks like in America. Here are the K through 12 strengths. Here are the K through 12 weaknesses. And here's a policy initiative that we could put in place to help even out the playing field. What would, what would your assessment be of all that? It's a, it's a big, 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 big question. Um, a couple of things, uh, you know, I'll start in, in fairly simple ones, which is, you know, this crisis has put in stark contrast, the digital divide. People have been talking about the digital divide for a very, very long time. The country has done a great job, actually, in closing the digital divide when it comes to schools. It's still not perfect, but with things like the E-rate program, 10 years ago, when I was getting into this journey full time, we'd go to a lot of schools and they'd say, well, we have one laptop cart, but we don't really have good internet connection. Now we don't have as many of those conversations, even in fairly under-resourced areas, we're seeing that they, they have some type of devices and uh, a decent internet connectivity. But obviously at home, now we have a major, major issue. New York City, I've, you know, should call, I was talking to Chancellor, uh, Chancellor Richard Carranza a couple of days ago. They were able to distribute 300,000 laptops in record time to the students of, uh, of New York City and get them internet access. So if there's a, you know, the, the negative of this crisis, it's shown the inequity and, you know, having internet access in a device now at home, it isn't just about accessing Khan Academy. It's frankly just to stay sane, to be able to stay connected with friends and family right now. Obviously, it has economic opportunities. And New York has just shown that almost overnight, they've been able to, to a large degree, close the digital divide. It is doable. So I'm hoping the silver lining uh, or one policy recommendation to your original question is we should close that as soon as possible. It is free. I mean, it, it, it can be done fast and it's not free. It's very expensive. It's expensive. But when you compare it to some of the other programs, you know, some of the federal stimulus dollars over the last couple of months, you know, it's a trillion here, trillion there. The cost of getting every family in the country who doesn't already have Internet access, some baseline level of access uh, with a with a reasonable device. Uh, we're talking about 10 or 20 billion dollars which is a fraction it's you know one percent of the of those stimulus packages and that would have i believe not just academic consequences it would have it would have economic consequences it would allow people to participate in their work remotely and things like that so that's one very simple thing and that's you know khan academy that needs to be there for khan academy to be able to do its work to, to level the playing field i would say the other thing is you know the quote and it's a, it's an unfortunate statistic that i quote a lot is 70 percent of american kids when they go to community college have to have to be remediated in some way and that remediation isn't at the 11th grade level or the 12th grade level it's usually at the middle school level and so what's happening and this is most pronounced in math and, and to some degree in reading comprehension but most pronounced in math is you get you're you're in fifth grade there's a, a unit on decimals you got an 80 percent you, you get labeled a C student, the whole class moves on to the next concept, probably a concept that's going to build on that, on that gap. And so some, you're not gonna be able to get 100% on that. The process keeps continuing, you get a gap there, a gap there, and then all of a sudden you get to an algebra class and nothing makes sense uh, because there's an equation that has a decimal in it, has a negative number in it, has a fraction in it, and you're, you're shaky in all of those things. And the students get disengaged and oftentimes the system has to water down the curriculum to just, hopefully promote those students but then you know when you, they get to college or community college the system's like you're not even ready to learn algebra because your gaps are so bad and so what we've all and every teacher knows this every teacher knows that when they have 30 kids show up they all have different gaps they're all in different places in fact the test scores show it we take the trouble of doing the standardized testing the year before you know in a lot of especially in a lot of high need areas 
30% of the kids might be behind grade level, 40%. We're working with a teacher in Hesperian, California, 90% of his students are two or three grade levels behind. But a lot of teachers feel pressure to this. Well, let me at least go through the motions of my grade level. And, you know, at least I've, that will be something. People will be exposed. But we're seeing that if, if teachers and schools and systems allow students to work at their own time and pace on Khan Academy, they can fill in all those gaps. And then they can accelerate this teacher, Tim Vandenberg. People can do a web search, Tim Vandenberg and Khan Academy to, to learn about him. But he has all of his sixth graders in Hesperian start at the basics on Khan Academy, start at one plus one. And in parallel, they do their sixth grade work at their own time and pace on our platform. And by the end of the year, he has most of his students above grade level. And these are kids that were two, three grade levels behind. And so that would be the, the second part. You know, get the digital divide would be the first one, close that. It's expensive, but a lot cheaper than a lot of other things we're doing. The second thing is, use personalized learning tools, and these are free tools, uh, to allow students to learn continuously all the time, including over the summer. And as you go back to school, it's always a problem that kids are all over the place, huge variance in preparedness. That, that variance is going to be even worse this coming back to school because of COVID. Uh, so heavily leverage these tools. And these tools always had a value even before COVID where it's about personalization, allowing students to fill in their gaps, engage in mastery learning. But then if you do have to close, and it looks like this next school year is going to be pretty weird in terms of a lot of uncertainty, you can then lean pretty heavily on it. And then the last piece I would say is a move, movement towards more competency-based learning. Uh, you know, there's these two camps. Uh, one is you could kind of call it the seat time-based learning. Like, you know, sit in this chair, kind of do what you're told. And by the end of the year, we'll kind of pass you onto the next uh, uh, level. And the other model is, well, however you learn it, as long as you learn it, we'll give you credit for it. And uh, you know, we've always advocated that learning should not be bound by time or space, and the outcome of the learning, the proof of the learning should matter more than the path on how you got there. And uh, the COVID crisis shows you know, it's, it's blown up the path. We don't know when and how kids are learning, and by definition, it's not, it can't be bound by time or space. And so uh, hopefully a way that people, let's say someone masters a concept on Khan Academy, and they're able to... Uh, you know, take what we have a course challenge on it and a teacher proctors it, maybe they can get college algebra credit, which would be solve a huge problem at the community college system. Uh, maybe they could get um, high school credit for it, uh, regardless of how they learned it. So those would be my three, you know, digital divide, a personalized mastery learning for, for continuous learning all the time, and then uh, get to a competency model where people can start to get credits uh, for, for doing some of this work. I mean, I think, I think it's a brilliant exposition of where we need to go. Do you think that, uh, Common Core has by and large been a benefit to our society from a public school perspective, or has it been a detriment or neutral? And I'm speaking yeah. as a parent who can't teach my kids math anymore because they look at the way I do my math and they think I'm crazy. Yeah, and I, I know Common Core is a, is a I guess, you know, it's a hot, bus, hot button issue. I mean, I'll tell you my, my as, as best as, you know, my honest appraisal of it. For, for those who don't know the history, it was a bunch of states getting together and saying, you know, it was really governor's initiatives. And it was, it was bipartisan at the time where they were saying, hey, um, right now the textbook publishers only pay attention to Texas, Florida, New York, and California. Um, it's kind of silly that we have these very specific uh, curricula for each of these different states. Why don't the states get together and see if we can come up with a common core? Uh, and that seemed like 
seems to me like it makes a lot of sense. Uh, you don't have all of this fragmentation of you know, all these different curricula and it makes it very hard for people to develop materials. You can imagine our issue at Khan Academy, we're trying to make something that's not just for the world, for the, not just for the, the nation, for the world, but even at a national level, it is nice to have some things that you could anchor on. Uh, so I think that is a good idea. Now, when they did the Common Core, there were, there were, there were some principles that I actually think were, made a lot of sense. Uh, this principle of go deep on fewer things versus try to go broad on a lot of things. And they did look at curricula from places like Singapore and Norway and, and Finland and places that, had, uh, that, that seemed to be doing well on that front uh, as a model. So I think all of that was, was, was good um, input. And, you know, then you start the standards creation process, which, you know, I'm, I'm friends with some of the people who are directly involved in it. And that is a sausage making process. And it is, there's a lot of, it's like passing a bill in Congress. There's a lot of horse trading. Everyone has their pet projects. And I think through that process, sometimes these things get a little bit bloated. And I don't think, you know, even though the Common Core was very much intentional about, um, hey, we want to focus on just the, the absolute core and, and fewer but deeper skills. Uh, there's probably is more in there that, that, than there might need to be. And then I think, uh, you know, the, the biggest thing that I feel is, is that standards by themselves are standards. And what matters much more are the implementation of the standards. And some of the stuff that got, that I think Common Core might have caused a little bit of friction is, you know, a lot of teachers were already feeling really overwhelmed. A lot of districts were already feeling overwhelmed. And then when the standards change, and if the textbooks weren't ready to support them, and to your point, there were some fairly different things in the Common Core in terms of how they even approach you know, the, the procedures you and I learned on how to multiply decimals, just to use that example again. Um, sure. you can imagine for teachers, that was, that, was, that was a shock. So I think that created a little bit of upheaval. And then obviously it, it got politicized above and beyond that. Uh, but in terms of standards, you know, they're not, there's, there's a lot of good in them. There's some stuff that, you know, if, if I were emperor of the standards, I might do a little bit differently. But um, I think the, mo the most important thing is, is how you implement. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of states that are, you know, that are, are not common core, but especially in math, they're functionally very, very, very close to it. If you, if you had to go back though, do you like common core or dislike it? What's your opinion? Or are you just practically living with it one way or the other? I, I'm, I'm the latter. I, I, I love the, I, you know, if, if we didn't have a common core, Khan Academy, Khan Academy still is having, you know, we are, we have mapping projects to other states, to the Florida standards, to the, we're, we're working on the Texas standards. So we're still having to do that. Uh, but that we're, and obviously we're doing that with the Brazilian national standards and the standards in the various states in India. So it's a lot of complexity that we're trying to deal with. But especially in math, which is where a lot of, you know, our, where we're strongest now, although we're going into other subjects like English language arts and the sciences. Um, you know, I would say if you're good in math and in, in, in anywhere, you'll be good anywhere else. You know, a, a student who's good at math in California, if their family moves to Texas, they'll do just fine on the Texas standards and vice versa. And so I feel like sometimes people, it, it, it turns into kind of, you know, it's like religious denominations. Uh, there might not be as much difference <laughs> as, as people like to make of it, um, especially on the math right. side. If you, if you, there's a very, very high correlation between uh, students being able to do effectively in one uh, versus the other. So if, if I had my druthers, I think getting some uniformity, I think it's great that it was a kind of a state-driven effort, at least initially, and, and that, that had a lot of good energy around it. I think, unfortunately, it got a little bit too political. If, if, if I could wave a magic wand, I wish it didn't get politicized in that way. But I think the way that the notion of having more commonality across states does help a lot of folks, including Khan Academy, be able to serve more people. 
I, you know, obviously we, I've been using it for a very long time. You met one of my children who just, uh, you know, recently graduated from business school. If, if you were, uh, you are, but a, a parent is here at home trying to help the kid. You get called all the time. Sal, what's your best advice? Uh, I'm a parent struggling here at home. I've got the, the phone, the distractions. I'm trying to get the kids' uh, schoolwork done. What do you tell the parents to do? Yeah, I'll put my disclaimer first. Whenever I get a question like that, I immediately have images of my kids. You know, I'm like, wow, I hope people don't see that moment in my household. <laughs> it doesn't look that perfect. Uh, right. So, I, I, you know, I have an 11-year-old, an 8-year-old, and a 5-year-old. And I, I have to say, our, our, my children's school has done a good, great job. The teachers have done an amazing job, especially for the older students. You know, that's, our, the school always focused on students having agency and autonomy um and then that's having good sal because the superintendent of that school is on this call right now we're going to invite him in to question you in a second but keep going <laughs> uh, uh so so my my older kids have actually done quite you know they've been able to transition quite seamlessly. so you can imagine the five-year-old it's been a little bit more it's been a little bit more difficult but even he's getting into his rhythm and what i remind myself what i remind my wife what i remind families everywhere is if you think that you're going to that you need to replicate the entire school experience, you're setting yourself up for disappointment and, and failure probably. Uh, and, and so the, the important thing to realize is this is not, this is different. Uh, first of all, take care of yourself first. If you're getting anxious, if you're getting stressed, that's the worst thing, you know, your kids are going to feel it and then th that's going to manifest in, in random ways and in unhelpful ways. It'll probably just cycle on onto each other and you'll just all get more anxious and stressed. The other thing is if you try to do too much, you're going to get that anxiety and stress. And the realization that, and it depends, it's different for different age groups, but if students are able to get 30 minutes to an hour of math a day, 30 minutes, actually even 30 minutes to 40 minutes a day of math, 30 to 40 minutes a day of reading of some sort, maybe reading comprehension, maybe some, and, and 30 to 40 minutes a day of some form of writing. Uh, that's great. And especially if they're able to do that, not only through the end of the school year, but they're able to continue through the summer, they're going to be well prepared. And when I tell parents that, including myself, I, it, it feels a little lighter. It's like, okay, I actually, my child is getting an hour and a half a day, two hours a day, but that felt like they're not getting enough. Uh, but I would say, once you are able to do that, if you're able to fall into a pattern there, then you could start to think about adding more, but there's a huge value you know, as a parent working at home, and there's been some teachers doing amazing stuff to support the parents working at home, and obviously the teachers are doing video conferences and check-ins with the kids and running, running um, uh, tutoring sessions and, and things like that. Uh, but, you know, there are, the, the one advantage that the, the parent has is that you have a lower student-to-teacher ratio than most teachers have to deal with. And so what I recommend is, you know, get that, let's say, one and a half to three hours a day of that core learning, leverage Khan Academy, read books have the kids do journaling. Hopefully the, the school is also giving them some work to do. And then over lunch, you know, if, if, a kid, if there's some young person who leaves this, this crisis not understanding DNA, RNA, viruses, epidemiology, uh, even, you know, <laughs> things like the economy uh, and things like, this is a huge opportunity to just have really interesting conversations with your kids uh, and, and, you know, watch TED Talks, uh, watch, uh, I, I don't know if, how many of the SALT Talks, watch those, discuss them. Uh, for, 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 for folks, I've been doing things like that with my kids and, you know, they're, they're learning a lot of uh, intangibles that you wouldn't, have, they might not have had uh, if they, if we weren't in this crisis. So yeah, I would say don't beat up on yourself, focus on the core, 
and then from that build on top of it. Obviously for high school students, it's more on the student than the parent, uh, but then you could layer on the sciences and the social sciences and, and things like SAT preparation. Uh, there, there are a couple of questions. Uh, we promised people about 45 minutes in and out. So I'm gonna turn it over to John Dorsey, my colleague. You have some questions from the audience, right, right John? Yeah, you, you touched on it briefly earlier, Sal, about the challenges of socialization in a digital learning from home environment. What are ways that you can apply you know, digital tools for socializing children? I know we're all sort of sitting at home. Some people are getting a little bit stir crazy as we all work from home and for the last 50 or 60 days. What are tools from the educational side of things that you can use to develop the socialization skills in children? Yeah, that's a, that's a a really big question, and you know, there's there's no perfect answers to that right now. Uh, what we've seen work well is, you know, students. I know a lot of schools have sent home packets, or they're you're leveraging tools like Khan Academy, and so kids can do that type of work at their own time and pace. Maybe you know, sitting down next to a parent or an older sibling who can help them along, help them stay engaged. Uh, but the the what I've seen work really well is when the teachers are able to spend, you know, do check-ins with students on a, on a smaller group setting. This is actually something we've always advocated for that let all the kids learn at their own time and pace. And then the teacher has all the data to understand who's stuck and who's not. And then they do those one-on-one -on -one or those, you know, one to, you know, a group of four students, small group interaction. And I think that's one super powerful form of socialization. I think we all remember being in a classroom of 30, 35 students. And, you know, if you weren't, if you weren't the teacher's pet or if you weren't the problem kid, you know, sometimes you, 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 you could get lost in the middle. And, you know, and, and I remember those moments where a teacher did say, hey, Sal, let me talk to you about that. And even that five minute conversation, I remember those. Those are the moments where I'm like, oh, wow, this teacher really took the trouble for, for me uh, directly. And so I think there's something very powerful about teachers using this crisis to uh, kind of break open what they, their, their traditional model. The traditional model, I had that 55 minutes with 30, 35 kids, I do what I can, you're spread thin. You might be able to talk to a few of them individually. Now, uh, there might be more leaning on the asynchronous, but now the teacher's time can spend also on, hey, the four of you, why don't you come on to Zoom or Google Meet or Skype, and, and we're gonna talk about uh, you know, study skills or, or ways that I can help unblock you as a teacher. And I think those small sessions are, are, are really, really, really powerful. Another thing, obviously, you know, is we're all trying to be very cognizant of screen time, but just to stay sane these days, we have to get on Zoom with friends and family. So I've seen, I've seen my kids, uh, you know, they, they're, 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 they're doing puzzles with their friends online. There are sites where you can actually do jigsaw puzzles digitally with your friends. I've, I just saw that yesterday. I thought that was pretty cool. They're playing board games on either side. Uh, we have a family friend. He, he was the dungeon master for us. Uh, and we, we, play, we, 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 play, we play these games over, over Zoom. So people are getting really creative. I think there are ways uh, with things like Zoom and, and, and all these video conferencing tools. Uh, it's not the best. Uh, obviously, it's not, it's not can't be a replacement for being in the same room, but you can get pretty far. And there's some benefits. You can invite your grandparents from, you know, 2,000 miles away to participate or your cousins. And we've definitely been doing a lot of that in the family, which, is, which has been a, a silver lining. Well, you mentioned the screen time. You know, a lot of parents are very concerned about it. We are here in our own house. Uh, do you think that this sort of accelerates or exacerbates future screen time where the kids now are like, you know, there's productive screen time and there's non-productive screen time, but there's lots of screen time. And so you think this is going to be a problem for us once uh, things normalize? You know, <laughs> it's a brave new world right now. We don't know. Uh, 
I, I think if anything, you know, I try to, I try, I, I tend to run optimistic. This might be an exercise in finally screen time becoming more productive. Uh, you know, we know a lot of folks have talked about anxiety, depression, in college age kids these days is through the roof. A lot of people are able to tie that pretty closely to that's the generation that got on social media pretty early and you know, the cyber bullying and just comparing themselves to others. And that is very negative screen time. I'm not always, there's good stuff on social media too, but the, some of the stuff that can happen uh, to young people on social media and some of their, their mental images they form of themselves and others uh, can be, you know, very negative. And, and you need to be conscientious of that, of, of how do you, how do you help them navigate that? You won't just shut it down because they're going to go there and there's some good things, but how do you, how do you navigate that? Now people are doing more, hopefully more learning. Uh, they're doing even some productive socialization uh, in, in the ways we just talked about. And, you know, to your point, it's all about productive versus not productive. And it's all about what are you doing outside of the screen time? So the productive, as we said, is learning. It's having a Socratic dialogue with your friends. It is, it can even be doing a puzzle or, or, or playing a constructive game with your friends, some form of socialization. I've seen my, my oldest kid is uh, doing all sorts of video editing. Now he's trying to make these, I mean, call them these vines where these videos, these short videos where he's doing all these magic tricks. I was like, that's pretty cool. He has time now. He, that's screen time, but it's very creative. My daughter, she's eight. She's doing all the stop motion animation. I love it. Like that's, that's really great creative time uh, uh, for them. And, and so as a parent, as, if, they're, if they're relatively constructive in that and they're having time to go run outside, um, you know, go be out in nature, play at least with each other, uh, that's a great thing. Uh, you know, for, if, if someone has an only child at home, you know, I have three kids at home, so they're kind of been able to be a little bit of a thing by themselves. But I've imagined that if there's only one child, maybe you can socially distance with another family so that at least your child gets some uh, interaction with, with other peers or, or kids their age. Uh, but it's, yeah, it's more, it's more about making sure you're getting time out running, playing, et cetera, and that the screen time is as productive as possible. I'll throw out another thing, you know, to earlier, which is, and I remind this to myself, I tell this to my wife, you know, we, we can get so caught up as parents saying, oh, well, oh, you know, my, my, my kid's beyond the 30 minute screen time allocation. Am I a bad parent? And look, they're eating M&Ms at the same time. I'm a really bad parent. And you start to really get in your head of like, my kids, you know, their, their future is ruined because I, that stress that we put on ourselves as parents, that's just going to make us, you know, more testy. It's going to, it's going to, you know, it's, it's just going to make, it's going to make the house harder for everyone. And that's far worse for the kids than anything else. If the kids hey, are- My six-year-old eating pe Pepperidge Farm, extra sharp cheddar uh, crackers in bed at 11.35 PM. I'm okay, Sal. You're not going to turn me well, you're, in. You're a worse parent than I am, but yeah, if you know, <laughs> causing, if, if it would cause you anxiety or stress, if, if, if you didn't allow that to happen, then yeah, I, I, think, I think that with a, a happy, loving Anthony Scaramucci dad, far better than, you know, eating, eating broccoli properly at the dinner table and, you know, dad's, dad's yelling randomly. All right. I'm going to tell my wife that when she's complaining to me, when I'm sitting there munching on the, uh, the goldfish of my six-year-old at 11.35. Sal, you wrote an amazing book, by the way, a couple of years ago, The uh, One School, One World Schoolhouse. It's probably six or seven years ago. I read it. Then I heard you speak at the uh, Mitt Romney's event in, uh, at E2 in Salt. Uh, I guess it was in Park City a few years back. And something really struck me about you, you were saying about artificial intelligence and the future of education 
and the notion that we may be able to create an intellectual capital uplift in every single nation school. And I was wondering if you could just articulate that vision to people before we, uh, we let you go. Yeah, you know, even pre-COVID, uh, you know, the writing's on the wall. Uh, we, we made a big bet as a society about 200 years ago for free mass public education. That was as we were getting into the thick of the Industrial Revolution, and it paid off. I know there's a lot of imperfect things about the public school system, but there's a lot of amazing things about it. Pre-public school system, you had 20, 30, 40, 50%, depending on the country, illiteracy rates. And now in places like the U.S., it's pretty close. It's, you know, it's sub 1% illiteracy rates. And that's to a large degree, I, you know, I believe why so many people were able to participate in the Industrial Revolution. And we, 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 we have a fairly broad-based middle class. And so it's no coincidence that the U.S., the U.K., Germany, Japan, the, the first countries that had mass public education were also the industrial powers and, and had a fairly large middle class in the, in the 19th and 20th centuries. You know, this next revolution we're getting into, you know, that industrial revolution labor permit, it's getting altered. At the bottom, the need for labor, especially relatively low-skill labor, uh, that's where a lot of that automation and to some degree globalization uh, collapses that. The middle layer, uh, which is some of these white collar, but it's really information processing jobs, that's what computers are good at. And so we have a, a choice, you know, where do all those people go? Either all this productivity from all the technology, artificial intelligence, whatever else, all of that value goes to that top of that pyramid. And in order to have a stable society, you'd have to have some mass redistribution or something. Otherwise, you'd probably have a revolution on your hands because the inequality would get out of hand. Or you figure out a way for as many of these people to participate in the top of that pyramid, uh, to essentially invert the pyramid. I, I call it the, the Star Trek reality. A lot of folks don't watch it from an economic point of view, but in Star Trek, everyone is a, an artist, a researcher, an engineer, an explorer. Uh, and, and you know, it sounds utopian, but I, I think it's our only option. I mean, we could default to the more dystopian reality where a lot of people are just not going to be able to participate, but you know, why not try for the more utopian one? And you know, I always give the example, a thousand years ago, if, I, if you were a member of a clergy, someone who knew how to read, and I say, you know, that, that the, the kid on the corner who's begging, should we teach him how to read? That member of the clergy say, well, they, he's not even capable of reading. You know, maybe with a great education system, maybe 30, 40% of the population could read. Back then, maybe 20% were actually could, were reading. And so if I ask folks now, like, what percent of the population do you think could work at Google or start the next tech company or write a great novel or, um, you know, uh, find the cure for the next pandemic, uh, today you'd say that's sub 5%, probably sub 1%. And you say with a great education system, maybe 10, 20, 30%. But we're seeing over and over again, you know, all the themes we just talked about, you let kids learn at their own time and pace, let not be bound by time or space, uh, have ways for them to get credit at any point in their life. Um, I think that that number will be much higher. And all of these laid off truck drivers and other folks that we might see, and this is all pre-COVID uh, because of automation, they'll have a chance to retool uh, themselves and be able to participate at the top of that. And then, you know, COVID has just made all of this even more stark. Obviously, we're going into some type of a major economic situation right now, you know, the unemployment rates off the charts. And, you know, there's no, the knowledge work, remote work, uh, this stuff is going to become more, more and more valuable, but hopefully we'll have the tools for people to retool themselves also virtually. I want to kick it over to uh, John. He's got uh, one or two more questions from the audience, but thanks. I think so brilliant exposition of what's happening. Yes, Sal, in terms of the general framework of how we think about education in this country and, and largely around the world, 
the idea that we take summers off is sort of a relic of the agricultural era when children needed to come home and help plow the fields. You know, the idea that we sit in front of a teacher who lectures you and then you go home and you do your homework. It's another concept you've talked about. Some people call it flipping the classroom in terms of making school more interactive during the day and allowing children to learn at their own pace uh, when they're at home. You, you call it the blended classroom. Just talk about what you think would be the ideal vision for how school would be structured. In inner cities especially, there's a lot of uh, difficulty with children when they come out of school for the summer. In Chicago, for example, Chance the Rapper is spending a lot of time and money trying to help inner city kids have something to do during the summers. Talk about what the ideal framework would be for education uh, in this country. Yeah, thanks. You touched on two very important, you know, to, to Anthony's previous question about like if, you know, if I could wave a magic wand and the other thing is, is the schedule. Uh, there's actually two, there's summer and after school, you know, school, most places ends at two o'clock, three o'clock in the afternoon. It was really designed for a model where you have, you know, one income earner and, you know, your mom's at home baking apple pie. And we know that that is not the norm anymore. I mean, when I grew up, my, I grew up in a single mother household, I would come, I was one of those, you know, they called them in the eighties, latchkey kids. And I would, you know, I'd watch TV for uh, a couple of hours until until my mom came home. And so, uh, and, and that's a major source of inequity because the summers, that's not only a time for not learning, it's well documented, that's a time for forgetting. And uh, middle class, upper middle class, affluent families, they get their kids enriching programs, not just in the summer, they get them after school, uh, after school time. And while uh, kids who don't have the resources, they atrophy at those times. So that's, that leads to some of that inequity. And even the well-resourced kids are also forgetting over the summer. So for everyone, it, it makes no sense. And so, uh, yeah, I, I think one thing to do is either eliminate summer or just spread, even spread the uh, school year through summer so that, you know, instead of having one three-month break and then a two-week winter break, and, you know, you have a couple of three-week breaks through the year, uh, I would go that way. I would actually try to go as close to full year, full day as possible. And I would try to get a school day Closer to closer to five or six ending time. I know a lot of people immediately say, "Hold on a second, <laughs> that sounds horrible." You know, some of my best memories were the summer where I had all this time or after school with extracurricular. And what I say is, you know, I agree with you. And if school is able to have more time and space like that, then you can have some of what you remember as the really enriching parts of summer uh, to actually happen during school. We we started a school, our Con Lab School, uh, where we do exactly that. So. Um, those are the two. And then, you know, to your point about what you do, you know, people always talk about technology, should technology be used, et cetera, et cetera. I always say, put technology aside. You should always say, what is your goal? And then what are your resources at disposal to solve that goal? And so if your goal is kids need to be engaged, they need to learn, that mean, and they want socialization, the answer is, well, get as much as you can get done when they're not in the room so that when the human beings get together in the room, there's as much connection, as much conversation, as much activity as possible. And, you know, our historic system, in some humanities classes, they've always done that. You come, you do your reading ahead of time, and then you're ready to have a conversation. But especially in a lot of math and science classes, you do homework. While you're doing homework, you have no feedback on whether you're getting it right or wrong. You have no support at home. Uh, you know, a lot of kids have no support at home to, to get through it. And then they come to class and they have to sit quietly, even though they want to interact. They want to even talk about the math. But they have to sit passively and listen, which is very hard for any of us to do. Uh, most of us as adults don't have to do it, you know, to, to sit passively that long as, as, as often. And so there's an opportunity, even putting technology aside, when you get together, that's when you should do the problem solving, because that's where the teacher can walk around, understand where the kids are, help unblock them. 
students can help each other. And when you see students and teachers in that type of environment, they all feel energized. They don't, they don't feel depleted. They don't feel bored in, in the same way. And then if on their own time and pace, if they can watch a lecture, a YouTube video, if they can work on their own time pace on Khan Academy, that's great. And you know, when you talk about blended learning, you know, flip classroom kind of got attached to us, even though it's not my idea. It's actually teachers brought that up to me. It's like, hey, you, we're kind of flip things around. But as soon as you do that, you can kind of say, well, you don't have to be dogmatic about, you know, this has to happen at home and this has to happen at school. You could say either home or school, do whatever is most appropriate for the child. So you can imagine at school, some kids are working at their own time and pace on Khan Academy, but the teacher says, I'm going to take five aside and do a more focused conversation or unblock them or motivate them in, in, in some way. And as soon as you do that, it also opens up other things. Oh, if, if I'm a lecturer and I just lecture, that by definition has to be one pace fits all. But as soon as you release that assumption that we come to class to work and work on something that's appropriate for us, and if you have tools like Khan Academy, now all of a sudden every kid can earn at their own speed. You, could, uh, you don't have to separate the quote, you know, the, the, the honors kids from the non-honors kids or the medial kids. You can have them all in the same room and they can even help each other. You could have mixed age environments. You could have two teachers with twice as many students and they're co-teaching. Uh, so and, and so that's kind of the blended vision. Sal, before we finish, give us a uh, public service advertisement for Khan Economy. There's many people who would like to uh, donate some money to you. Where do they go? How do they do it? You know, thanks for asking that, Anthony. I, you know, the um, Khan Academy, for those who aren't aware, you know, we're not-for-profit. We're mission-free world-class education for anyone, anywhere. I don't own Khan Academy. Everyone listening owns as much of Khan Academy as, as I do. And uh, we, the only reason we're able to do this, and if you go, you know, people are weirded out by us sometimes because you go, there's no ads. It's all completely free. There, you know, people think there's going to be a bait and switch at some point. And the reason why we can do that is because of philanthropic donations. And uh, you know, there's many amazing philanthropists. We actually have over 100,000 people who donate as little as $3. And then we have major foundations, major corporations uh, who've donated as well. Uh, but we were running at a deficit even pre-COVID uh, because we've been wanting to make some of this investment for teachers and schools and add more content areas. And then you could imagine post-COVID with our usage being 3x of what it normally is and us wanting to accelerate all sorts of things. We want to build out English and language arts. We want to add more grade levels. We have an early learning app called Khan Academy Kids, which just has, has recently shown incredible efficacy, uh, where they showed high-need kids whose families made $25,000 a year. If they use Khan, and they, they were at about the, the 30th percentile on kindergarten readiness, and compared to the 50th percentile, which is your average kid in the country, just 20 minutes a day for 40 days on Khan Academy Kids, which is our, our early learning app for, for uh, younger kids up to, up to first grade, starting in pre-K, those kids completely closed the gap. And it was as effective or more effective than some very, very, very expensive interventions. And this is obviously something that can be downloaded on anyone's smartphone. So the only way we're able to do all of this work is through uh, donations. And um, so, yeah, we would love to talk so to anyone. Where do they, who, where do they go, Sal, to make those donations? You go to khanacademy.org slash donate. And, uh, you know, if someone is representing a corporation who would like to uh, participate, you know, a lot of big corporations, uh, folks like uh, Bank of America, Google, Novartis, Amgen, uh, AT&T, Fastly, they've, they've been helping us, uh, but we need more help. And I think there's an opportunity for them where not only can you help us give free education, but we want to recognize those corporations too. Uh, you know, the Khan Academy kids, I've been trying to find a corporation that's like, it seems like a no-brainer. Like you could, we could, we would be happy to say made possible by so and so every time. You know, now we, we had a million downloads just in the last few weeks. All, you know, a large chunk of all young families that are 
and kind of household formation are using this app right now and it would create a lot of pixie dust uh, so we're always looking for people who would, who, who would be open to supporting things like that and we would love to to help spread the pixie dust for them too well that'd be awesome sal we're, we're certainly here to help you out we really appreciate your time today uh thank you so much and uh we'll be in touch i got to get you back to the salt conference you have to figure out where it's going to be next year but i want you to be there you're an amazing guy congratulations on everything you're doing for the country and for the world no thank you so much i'm honored to be here